Hello and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek Discovery podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and although some people, you perhaps especially Valerie, might be shocked to hear this, I have never actually cried on air before, but that's <laughs> probably about to change. Oh, man. Oh, well, I can't see you when we record, Glenn, so I can't, you know, fact check that statement. <laughs> Um, and I'm Valerie Hoagland and you know, Glenn, how they have like, um, you can like control the lights in your house and lock the door or whatever with smartphone apps. Now I just got one today that, uh, with the push of a button, I could uh, shoot you out an airlock. So I just wanted to let you know that I had that feature. Yeah. Let's turn that off right now because we think we know that 500 years in the future, that thing's going to try to end all life everywhere as we know it. Well, uh, together with, with tears and uh, homicidal computers, I guess. We run a speakeasy to Jeffrey Stubes. I'm not sure I'd recommend going to that bar, but we'll try to keep the, the drinks tear-free tonight. And today we're talking about the ninth episode of season two of Star Trek Discovery, Project Daedalus, which was written by Michelle Paradise and directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, this is another one directed by Frakes and, and has that characteristic energy uh, as well, especially in the real action-y scenes of which there are several in this episode. Uh, last time, we told you that we're going to appear on an episode of the Feast podcast to talk about food and booze in Star Trek, and now we have. So if you haven't already, you should definitely check that out. We had a lot of fun, but we also talked about some serious topics in Star Trek that don't come up when we're doing these episode review shows. I am really proud of the conversation we had over on the feast, and I had a lot of fun doing it. And so did Laura, the host of the podcast. I think we can tell that this is a subject we're all really excited to kind of dive deeper into. And it's also worth mentioning that Laura did some really cool cocktail stuff over on the podcast related to Star Trek. So if that's a feature of Lower Decks that you enjoy, there's kind of a bonus over on the feast for you. Yeah, The Feast is an awesome show, and I, I highly recommend it, not just our episode, but uh, an actual real dearth of food and drink in this episode for the first time in, in quite a while. But there are going to be a lot of tears, a lot of heartbreak, and a lot of sibling bickering. How did you feel about this one, Valerie? I really enjoyed it. Like, I think it's one of these episodes. This is this is kind of a new feeling for me for Discovery, where I was like, I don't know if objectively I would enjoy this episode as a concept, you know, um, or like how much can one really enjoy watching two siblings bicker with each other for a pretty extended period of time? But I guess the answer is like, a lot. Someone can really enjoy that a lot because I had a great time watching this and I found myself cracking a smile or at least a smirk several times. I really enjoyed it. I did as well. I thought all of the performances were top notch. As I said, Frakes is directing this with a lot of energy, not just the camera motions, but also I think getting the actors to really uh, play up their emotions and and play to the tension in each of the, the scenes. And I just thought it was fantastic. I thought this was one of the best sort of actor best character driven episodes that we've we've had of this show definitely and ethan peck really is just doing a phenomenal job and i think he's really helped by the fact that you know i'm often struck especially in this episode by how emotional this version of spock is but they've written that extra emotion into the story in a way where i can say okay yeah i'm looking at a younger slightly more volatile as we all are when we're younger version of this character that i love and i'm getting to know a new part of him and it's being delivered really well the chemistry on air with sonequa martin green is amazing and but even the chemistry that he has with you know anthony rapp the chemistry that he has with everybody is is phenomenal. So I I'm really enjoying Spock. I think maybe is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that the the highly emotional Spock here, and we're going to get that a little bit overboard perhaps in this episode, uh, but that actually almost retcons or reconciles a real problem in Star Trek, which has been this image of him smiling at the blue singing Telosian flower. And now that makes sense, right? Now it's not just because when Roddenberry had filmed that, he hadn't come up with the idea that Vulcans didn't have emotions or didn't want to have emotions yet. Now we've got a real in-universe reason for Spock to be expressing those emotions. And and we have several times I think, during this season in particular expressed some concern about 
how some things don't seem to be lining up with continuity or with the spirit of continuity, at least, as we've seen it in the other shows. And this episode, and I think even the one previously, have really gotten rid of most of those anxieties for me. Yeah, I agree. The the writers have have really started to kind of close or tie off some loose ends. And it's making me more comfortable and less anxious about like the state of Trek, you know, and like, quote, unquote, what they're doing to Trek, and putting me at ease such that I can kind of enjoy the show a little bit more. And I really appreciate that you bring up, you know, this clip from the cage that was incorporated into the menagerie. Because, you know, there are other scenes that are flashbacks to the cage in in those menagerie episodes, where not specifically the scene where Spock is smiling with the flowers, but where he's kind of conversing with other people on the ship in those flashbacks in a much more emotional way than we're used to seeing him. And, And you're right, that is kind of tying everything together. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to the emotional outburst. So I think now that we've uh, kind of talked about this uh, on a, a meta level here at the start of the show, let's let's get into the, the scene by scene here. Uh, we had to start at the beginning. So now that they are harboring the fugitive Spock, Discovery has gone into hiding. But the episode opens with the very secret arrival of Admiral Cornwell. And she shares Pike's concerns about Section 31. But before she'll say anything else about anything, she demands, she has to see Spock to determine if he really killed those people back at the hospital. I was excited to see Admiral Cornwell, and I'm even more excited that she's actually still on the ship at the end of the episode. So that might mean that we're going to be getting some more of her over the next few weeks. I feel like we could almost just stop recording the podcast anymore because our listeners can just, you know, tune in every week to hear us say the same amazing things about Pike. But uh, Cornwell and Pike are an amazing duo on screen. Right. We have this problem, I think, where we just think that Anson Mount has sexual chemistry with whoever he's on screen with. But I was watching this scene and was like, man, she had a thing with Lorca. Does she have a past with Pike, too? Because it sure feels like it. (laughs) I know I was thinking the same thing, but I think you hit the nail on the head that Anson Mount just has amazing chemistry with everyone. How could he not? Right. Yes. Uh, He's actually tried and has failed. It's the only thing he's ever failed at his whole life, I assume. Well, Cordwell needs to look at Spock's brain in what is a a pretty cool looking polygraph test to see if he is lying about killing these people. And he's not. He really didn't kill anyone. But the problem is that Cornwell has a video that says otherwise, right? We can all watch Spock kill these doctors. And so that's a problem. It's going to get resolved in this episode, but we're actually, this is actually a thread that gets left dangling for quite a long time. I loved the aesthetic of the Spock brain scanning scene, um, mostly because it reminded me of two films I really enjoy. Uh, one is Inside Out, the, the Pixar movie about emotions battling it out inside of a young woman's head. Have you seen this film, Glenn? No, I've, I have not seen this one. So in that movie, all memories get stored in these little kind of like see-through glass balls that are on conveyor belts. So it's very similar to like these balls that are rotating around Spock's brain and then kind of go back into this like container unit. But it also reminds me of Labyrinth, which is I think almost where this original idea comes from with those glass balls that contain moving images in them and are stored in this particular way. So that was a really fun little bit of nostalgia. I don't know if it was intentional, but I really enjoyed it. (laughs) <laughs> what I hear you what I hear you saying is that uh, that Admiral Cornwell is actually secretly the uh, the Goblin King, like the 54th heir of David Bowie or something like that. I think that's how the timeline would work out. Uh, that's a that's a, a universe crossover series that I would definitely, definitely be into. Well, now that Spock checks out, Cornwell can explain what she's actually doing here. The Section 31 admirals have stopped taking her calls. And she also can't access the Section 31 computer, which we're just going to call Control for the rest of the episode. And she believes that she's being shut out by Admiral Pitar. That's the the Vulcan Admiral we've met before. uh, Because Pitar is a logic extremist and wants to turn all Starfleet decision-making over to Control with no input from actual people, just everything run by this computer. And I'm hoping you can help me out with this, Valerie, because I was confused by this use of logic extremist because... I really had thought, maybe just really inferred, that logic extremists were Vulcan separatists, that they were a political faction that wants out of the Federation, wants to isolate Vulcans from other species. But here is someone who is 
openly a member of this organization and is highly placed within the Federation. So I guess that's not right. I do not know the like absolute correct answer, but my take on it is that you are correct. That is what logic extremists want. And therefore, having a someone embedded in Starfleet and, and heading a very dangerous uh, organization within Starfleet kind of come out as a logic extremist is a very problematic thing, right? I, I, I'm going to bet that that she didn't start outwardly, you know, telling people she was a logic extremist and then work her way into the system. I think this is one of those get in the system, declare your true values to disrupt uh, or destroy said system and then proceed to do so kind of narratives. I see. And I think that might make some sense where this is actually something that Cornwell herself has maybe just discovered recently. Uh, I might have written the line of dialogue a little bit differently to convey that information, something like it turns out that or something like that, something so simple would have would have given that to me. But yeah, I think I think you have solved that problem for me. That's how I intuited it, even though you're right, it's not explicitly uh, written into the into the dialogue. But I guess my brain was just like, well, that's the only way I know how to make sense of this. So I'm going to move on. But you, know, you ask a really good question. And, and, and Cornwell certainly has a negative reaction to this, right? She is here so that Discovery can take her to the Section 31 secret headquarters and arrest Admiral Patar and reset control. And this headquarters is located in an old penal colony, something that was established around the time of the show Enterprise, and it's in the the middle of nowhere. And I thought this was a really awesome detail, but also totally by coincidence, we just released our monthly Patreon episode, which is us talking about Dagger of the Mind, the TOS episode that takes place entirely on a Federation penal colony. I know, but penal colonies have an interesting place in the Star Trek universe, right? Like, they're an odd concept for me to wrap my head around in line with Federation values. And I think it's a really great world-building choice to put Section 31 in one of these. One of, one of these things that is the very icon of ideological or, or really just even moral, ethical values problems within the Federation, right? Or problems that the Federation has living up to its own value system. I mean, it's on the nose, I guess, but I love it. I really enjoyed it too. And it looked real ugly and foreboding. (laughs) Yes, I do not want to go in that place. But if I'm in there, I'm definitely going to try to get out. Well, the, the location of this space prison also happens to be the precise coordinates where the illicit comms had been sent presumably by Tyler, whom we're not actually going to see in this episode. And so Pike has Tilly double her efforts in decrypting those messages. And and that's going to carry us into the, the first scene when we get back from the title sequence. At this point in the episode, the title sequence hits. And I got to tell you, Glenn, I'm a little mad at you. What did I do this time? <laughs> you correctly predicted the plot to the rest of the season, as far as I can tell. And so the second that Cornwall started talking about something being wrong with the computer in Section 31 and not being able to get a hold of people, I knew what was happening. And I feel a little bit like you robbed me of the suspense. Yeah, I gave that some thought while this episode was playing out, because there are moments where the the writers, I think, want to be building tension and suspense and mystery into the script that just was not there for me. And I hope I didn't rob anyone else of that experience. So <laughs> sounds like I did for you, Valerie. So I apologize. Yes, you took that joy and tension from at least one person. It was, you know, it was also cool to be like, "Ooh, I know what's happening before they do. But part of me was like, this is this is a different experience. It's a lot less tense and more comical when I kind of know what's happening. But that made it just enjoyable in a different way. Well, when we get back from the title sequence, we're in Ariam's quarters where this episode's heartbreak begins, but does not end. Ariam's going through her recent memories to decide what to keep and what to delete because her augmentation has limited storage. And we get some really great scenes, actually, of how she's spent her time lately, spent her time this week, in fact. She's hanging out in the mess hall with Tilly and Owo and Detmer. They're arguing about who might be cheating at Cadiscot, which is amazing. This is something that previously only existed in Voyager. And we also see her sparring with Reese, who I think pretty clearly has a crush on her, right? Oh, yeah. I think we all know what he's really saying when he's like, no, 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 you can hit me harder. 
Yeah, it was not a thinly veiled euphemism. It was a wide open euphemism. I think we all we all got that. But I like seeing her with her friends. I like seeing that she's got this rich social life. I also loved the way that the the first person perspective um, of Arium, right, her vision through her memories almost made us feel like we were there and we were friends with these people. Um, it worked. I wanted to be there and be friends with these people, which was a pre-existing condition, but this this really, you know, uh, upped the dial. <laughs> right. This is what I'm going to do anytime that I, I find myself feeling lonely, wishing I had people to play games with. I'm just going to play that little clip uh, from this from this episode. But we, we learn something really interesting here, right? We learn in this scene that Ariam has to do this. She has to go through these memories. We learn really that she's been augmented into something quasi-robotic because of an accident that she was in. And I can't really imagine living this way, having to choose which memories to keep and which to destroy, and even having to store the ones that I want to keep onto an external computer such that I could never fully carry myself around with me, right? I never have all of my memories with me at any one time. This is a real fascinating character and i wish we'd had more time to explore this with her i know i of course it is heartbreaking to to lose a character and a friend you know kind of period end of sentence but it was also really awful for me to get to know this cool new type of character right it's not data right? It's not an android. It's not a Borg, right? It's not seven of nine. It's this new kind of iteration of like a human, a cybernetic human kind of hybrid. And it's, it's a fascinating character. And they spent so much time finally letting us get to know someone on the bridge only to rob us of that. And as much as I love Data and the Doctor and seven of nine, Arium actually is experiencing something that might happen to people in our own lifetimes where we might actually have the technology to plug hard drives into people's brains, people whose brains are not working quite right because of of age or other sorts of, of diseases that afflict us, and that this is a way that we might actually be able to treat people with those conditions. This would have been a really cool way to explore what that might look like, what it might be like to, to be, uh, to, to, to live that way. And it it does break my heart that she is gone. But I think there's also a real a real loss here of a concept that would have been completely worth exploring on this show. Right. And I think it'll be a little weird if like we get another character like this again, because there's something about her particular modifications that is unique to her. Right. Like, I, I don't think any other person or any one other individual will have exactly the same modifications that she has had, will have been in such a similar accident, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, you know, one thing that we just didn't say explicitly in this scene is that her husband died in this accident. Right. That we're watching this memory of her with her new husband uh, who did not survive. Right. That's the the real heartbreak here. Right. Is that that this scene even begins with Ariam watching a video of herself before her accident when she was fully human and it is the day of her wedding and she and her husband are walking on the beach and having an awesome time and they're just super excited to tell their friends that uh, they've turned the vacation they've gone on into an elopement that they've gotten married and I get the impression that this is something of a ritual for Ariam that she watches this video every time she clears out her memory. And maybe this is even something she does every day when she gets home from from work. Ugh. Which is so sad and also so tender and also so real and also probably not the healthiest thing for her. Ugh. Yeah. There was, it was very emotional, very effectively emotional. We get a lot more about this here, and there's some really brilliant uh, things being done in the script and some really great uh, directing by Frakes here that, that even tell us more of this story with the lines that are unspoken and with the visuals on the screen. And, and at this point, Tilly comes in because she needs Ariam's help decrypting the messages. And we see that Ariam has printed out an image from this video and, and made a little shrine of sorts on her desk. And Tilly actually comments that this is new. And Ariam says that, yeah, she used to keep this memory hidden, but now she wants it out in the open. And this is really all that she has left since this accident, which we've said seriously injured her and killed her husband. 
just the day after their wedding and and the pathos in this scene uh, in this in in this part here with the conversation between her and Tilly this was like a punch in the gut for me because this to me was an indication that just like this week Ariam has made some peace with this such that she can put this on on a sort of public display in her room right and i think we're also meant to understand that she has really kind of turned a corner or, you know, process the grief to an extent that she is now able to form more vulnerable and meaningful relationships with others, right? You don't lose your husband without also gaining a a fear of getting close to other people and maybe losing them too, right? But the closeness of the relationships that we're seeing her develop through visualizing her memories with her tells us that she has has really been able to get over that in a new way pretty recently. Yeah, she's gone through the various stages of grief. And then this is even reinforced by the other the, the, the memories that we we get here of her being social with friends and engaging with people. And it's just going to make her death at the end of the episode, all that much more heartbreaking, because finally, she has come out of the the darkness of of losing her partner. Presumably it's it's been years. It's taken her years to get to this point. And just as she begins to build a life again such that you can after lo- after a loss like that it's all taken from her. Uh it's it it, it hurts. Well, we'll come back to this, of course, as the episode continues. But after this intense and, and really touching personal moment, Tilly and Ariam get to work on the decryption. And Ariam basically breaks the, the code here right away. But then she gets her Squidbot eyes, says that she hasn't really decrypted it after all, and tells Tilly to go away. And so now we have two things going on on the bridge, the decryption plot and the Section 31 headquarters. So Cornwell briefs them about the headquarters. It's a sort of fortress floating in space, and it's protected by mines, which are illegal. And when they arrive, no one answers their hails. And so they're going to have to navigate this minefield in order to get close enough to to dock or at least to, to beam over onto the prison. I think that the point of this scene and the future scenes where they attempt to navigate the ship through the landmines and this future scenes where they attempt to navigate the ship through the landmines serve one purpose and one purpose only. And that is as an advertisement for the upcoming Star Trek Discovery video game (laughs) that I now very much want to play. Right. Yeah, this yeah, this is a very cool challenge. And there's a there's a good moment here. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but there's a great moment in the scene when they actually have to pilot through this uh, this minefield when when Detmer is basically told to just turn off her uh, her guidance computer and use the force and it's it's fun it sounds a lot like it would be a great video game I, I know it's like pod racing or whatever that n64 game was <laughs> um, when those uh, new uh, when those new Star Wars movies were coming out. But I, there was a part of me that was like, ooh, fun game. I want to play. It like activated that, that kind of uh, part of me as a viewer. Right. Well, I think that's how Kayla Detmer feels about this, too. So you might actually have the personality profile to, uh, to be a good uh, Helms person on a, uh, on a starship. So if you get that job, I just would like a tour, please. <laughs> Oh my God, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> well, while all of this is going on, Ariam is secretly downloading the data from the sphere and she's lying to people about what she's doing. And she even asks Nan what would be the best way to kill her if she ever has to do that, you know, like <laughs> if it comes up. That, oh my gosh, it was so intense, you know. So that was the first scene where. It, there's it took me a while to figure out kind of the dynamic of the squid bot takeover of Arium, right? Because at first it seemed like the red lights flash in her eyes, she does a thing and then it's over. But it seems like the red lights flash and that activates like evil Arium. Um and evil Arium stays in character in until the red lights flash again, right? And can interact with people, can talk to people, but has this like evil personality that she then doesn't really remember having happened once, you know, the kind of flash on flash off sequence has ended. And this was the first scene where we saw Ariam really extensively interact with someone while, uh, let's call it under the influence of the squid bot. And 
It was terrifying. It was, but to her credit, right, she seems to sense that something is not right. And so she actually asks Tilly to stay with her, to stay right next to her while they keep working on the decryption, uh, no matter what. And and this is really the pro tip here is that, right, Arium should have perhaps explained what she thought was going on because this backfires the next time she tells Tilly to go away Tilly just goes away so if you think that you're actually being possessed by a demon sometimes or taken over by an evil computer uh don't keep that to yourself let your friends know what you think is going on so they can really make the best decisions I know it was kind of heartbreaking to see Tilly agree to stand by her and then walk away um and this is definitely the moment where if Arium had revealed things differently um, or communicated differently then then the whole the whole tragedy could have been avoided it's also the first scene where after non is threatened by Arium very in a very not subtle manner uh we start getting all of these little weird side shots of non creepily hiding by the door to the bridge spying on Arium and there were a lot of shots like this there were but all of this that the non-business and the Tilly standing by her is building me up at least to think that Arium is going to get stopped before it get, it's too late that either Tilly's going to figure it out or Nan's going to figure it out and that the the drama of this the action of this is going to happen on the bridge and everything's going to be fine and that turns out not to be true i mean this is this is just a game that they were playing with us they were building up a sense of of hope in us that is not going to work out this is like the game of thrones version of discovery that we saw a lot in in season 1 but i think a little bit more tastefully done than some of some of the characters that got killed off in season 1 but i will say that i think there's also a scene that we haven't gotten to yet where non really makes a mistake by allowing Arium to go on the away mission uh, that we get in the final scenes of this episode when non really should have taken pike aside and been like I have an inkling that this is bad news rather than saying, I'll pay attention to her. Don't worry. And then actually letting her walk away. Yeah, right. There's a part of Nan that when they get back to the ship, I think has to be hoping that no one noticed her noticing Arium because she's not going to keep that job as uh, head of security otherwise. No, definitely not. I mean, we needed Worf in there being like, I'm going to fire the photon torpedoes at Arium right now. Let me do it. Yes, right. And I always complain about Worf's uh, uh, uber violent uh, tendencies here. So uh, maybe I need to, to pick a side and stick with it and be a little bit consistent here. Well, we've also got a Spock story brewing in this episode, and I think it's time to go check in on that. Spock and Burnham are trying to figure out what to do about the apocalyptic future that they're trying to prevent. But Mostly, they're just bickering about nothing because they have some unaired grievances. And Stamets basically tells them to go get a room, and so they take their argument to Burnham's quarters. And Spock is immediately critical of everything in her room, and he says that it's quite an accomplishment to be uniquely mundane, which is a great insult. I wish I had someone I wanted to say that to. Oh, I can find you a couple people. (laughs) Yeah, send me a list. Well... Really, they are here to play Tri-D Chess so that Spock can get his logic back. Spoiler alert, it doesn't work. (laughs) And he just gets more emotional. Yeah, even right from the start, right? Burnham accuses him of not even really playing to win. And Spock is a brat right from the the start. I mean, he is is the quintessential bratty little brother here, right? He calls her stupid. And and this is where they really start to air some of those grievances. And Spock expresses some anger about their dad and says, I disappoint him. He disappoints me. The sun sets. A new day begins. Uh, I'm pretty sure that I said things exactly like this when I was in my adolescent goth phase back in the 90s and was just cranky about things just to be cranky about things. Oh my gosh, was all of this so familiar. I have been all of the people in this scene, right? Like I could I could really relate to to both Spock and and Burnham um in you know my own sibling dynamics and my own occasional <clears throat> brattiness. And but it was also amazing how yeah, Spock delivers this line that's like you know, I hate dad, basically, but very close in time to delivering a line that's like, 
you don't even know dad. Dad's so much smarter than you. You couldn't even imagine, right? And so <laughs> he just every which way needs to like cut Burnham down. And Burnham is doing a really, really good job of taking it. Yeah, even when she does finally react to it, she's actually full of restraint in ways that I find hard to fathom because uh, things are going to get really serious here when Spock gets angry directly at Burnham and is angry at her because she always has taken responsibility for things that are beyond her control. He says that she blames herself for the death of her parents and for starting the Klingon war. And Spock is absolutely brutal about this, right? He mocks her feelings and he essentially calls her her stupid for having these feelings to begin with. And and this is where it is too much for her. And she yells at him to shut up. But Spock isn't even done at that point. He goes on. He says, Burnham was stupid to think that the logic extremists hated their family because she was there, because Sarek and Amanda had adopted a, a, a human orphan, that it was always about Spock, who is a half-human abomination for these logic extremists. And I have to say, though, that even though Spock is saying this stuff to be hurtful, he does actually offer some valid insights. And he says, Burnham avoids reality because it is easier to shoulder burdens than it is to face unimaginable grief. And he's not wrong, even if he is being a huge jerk right here. Yeah, this is scene one of uh, Spock, uh, for lack of a better term, just beginning to drop a bunch of truth bombs on everybody on this ship, right? Like this is psychoanalytic Spock. This is him putting on his, his therapist hat. And it's really fascinating because he you said he's being really mean and awful to her, which is true. He's also very angrily and in a shouty way showing so much love for her, right? Because behind that is don't do this to yourself. You don't deserve it. You don't have to feel this way. And he's also doing the very thing he's accusing her of doing by avoiding a lot of his own internal frustration and externalizing it and putting it onto Burnham instead of processing it himself. So I loved the writing of this scene. One question that I'm left with is Spock delivers this line that you just quoted about how it is easier for Burnham to shoulder burdens than to process her grief. It's easier for her to think that she is the center of everything, even if she means well by putting herself at the center of everything, right? And at the end of the episode, what do we learn? Burnham is the center of everything. Yeah, so secretly she was right all along. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. I had not made that connection. It maybe feels a little bit like an oversight, but it also might not be. It might be intentional. There might really be some foreshadowing in the writing of this scene here. I have questions about what it means for Burnham to be at the center of things, and maybe also some ideas about really why it is that we've never heard Spock mention Michael Burnham before until Discovery existed that might be wrapped up in this. But I'll uh, maybe I'll save that for the forums. Well, Burnham is not actually ready to hear any of this. I suppose that probably nobody is when they just think they're going to be playing a game of chess. And so she pushes back and she tells Spock that he needs to identify why he's really angry. And Spock doesn't spot can he just says that he feels liberated by his failures and he's really enjoying expressing his emotions for the first time in his life and then he just smashes up the chessboard real good it's pretty terrifying it's terrifying but it's also kind of silly right because somebody shouting angrily that they're enjoying themselves is a little funny right i mean like he does not have a he's got he's got some good insights for other people but he does not have a good handle on himself right now no, but I think that we've all been there at some point, right? It's actually a lot easier to uh, to objectively uh, assess what things are going on with other people than it is to, to look at ourselves. It's just like, you know, you can be a good coach or be a good teacher, but actually not be very good at the thing that you're coaching or teaching. Oh, yeah. This is my daily life as a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we go back to the the bridge now as Discovery is going to try to navigate this this minefield in this video game that you're at so desperately want to play. And of course, it does not go very well. And we see Arium going into squid mode again here. And this is where she tells Tilly to go away. 
Burnham has been summoned to the bridge for this, and she actually has learned something from the way that Spock was playing chess. And she suggests that the way to avoid the minds is to defy the expectations of the computer that controls them, which is to say to introduce randomness and chaos to this game. I would still play this game. Please, whoever's listening, make this game. I will buy it. It was a really cool scene. I mean, these minds like doing very cool things. They're attracted to the shields. They're trying to saw into the hull. It all looked very good. I'd like to play that video game too. But this this randomness, this this chaos, this this move works, and they make it to the front door. But we also see here that Ariam has finished downloading the sphere data uh, into her own memory, and she has now sent a message to someone, and that message has been received. And at this point, Admiral Patar finally responds to to them. She calls over and says that, hey, you know, you're all guilty of treason and also Starfleet Command wants you arrested. And so she's going to send a ship to board Discovery. But Pike goes into action here immediately and he gets a landing party ready and he has Spock and Stamets get to work on getting the spore drive running so they can blow this thing and get out of here. I will say that even though you kind of ruined part of the plot of this episode for me. This part, the part about what we're going to find out about Batar and this video call, really, I did not see coming. And I, I, I thought it was super cool and exciting writing. I this, this made sense, right? That a logic extremist who had kind of like gone rogue would start randomly accusing people of treason to, you know, continue with this power hungry grab and and knock out the people that she sees as being in her her way so uh, this was super fun this is the beginning of a very fascinating plot line for me and this was not a plot line that i saw coming either and i was pretty shocked by it and i thought it was very cool this is very clever very smart what the writers uh, do here but before we get to that revelation uh, let's check in and see what spock and stamets are up to because then we are going to spend the rest of the episode with the landing party in section 31 headquarters so down in the spore lab stamets is frustrated because they won't be able to get the navigation computer running in time but spock and this is him doing some more of his therapizing other people says that Stamets doesn't need the navigation computer. He's done this enough times. He's he's spore jumped often enough that he could certainly manage one simple jump between two points. And Spock says that Stamets should have more confidence in his abilities. And obviously this is going to come back up in an upcoming episode, but I really loved this because this really reveals something about Spock as well, right? And I'm just thinking of all of the times that that uh, Spock has to make educated guesses or make hypotheses that always turn out to be completely right. This is even something that uh, uh, Bones makes a joke out of in Star Trek IV, the one with the whales. Like This is a fundamental feature of Spock's character is having confidence in his abilities. Something that I think is happening with, with Ethan Peck with this version of Spock is, is something very similar to the Pike problem, where Spock just has amazing chemistry with everyone on screen. And and I think this uh, maybe the simpler way of saying is just repeating again that these actors are phenomenal. Um, and I loved these Spock uh, and Stamets scenes. Th- these are not characters that I really could have envisioned interacting with one another. And... It was just fun to see Spock meet new people. You know what I mean? Like, we've seen Spock interact with almost just, like, the same people over and over for so much of Trek. Uh, It was really cool to see what he's like in other places with other people. And especially with Stamets, who I have really come to love and enjoy. Both of these characters are kind of controlling and kind of dominating right they're kind of alpha characters here like and curmudgeonly and curmudgeonly so to put them in the the same room uh, alone i wasn't really sure how that was going to work but something that's really fun about their dynamic is that uh spock has good insights and good advice for stamets so stamets without drawing attention to without saying what he's doing has to give spock some of his own good advice and good insights then spock is going to do it again they're just going to go back and forth i don't know how long this actually goes on for uh, presumably they're still doing it while the away team is off like saving the day but but Stamets butts into Spock's relationship with Burnham here and he reminds Spock that hey you know Burnham risked her life to go find him and she did that because she loves him whatever their grievances might be she loves Spock and maybe he could give her the benefit of the doubt and stop being such a brat right some good advice and something that Spock had to hear from anyone but Burnham 
Yeah. And I had to wonder, where is Pike in all of this, right? Pike is the person who should actually be the dad figure here, intervening and getting his kids to to stop to stop bickering like this. I uh, really could actually even threaten to turn the spaceship around if they don't stop fighting <laughs> in the backseat. I don't think Pike knows about it. I don't I really don't. I think this is all happening pretty privately with the exception of in front of Stamets. Um and Saru is actually really the only other person to notice this tension. No, I think that's exactly right. And in fact, on my first watch of this episode, that was a real question that I had was, why is this first scene of them bickering happening in the spore lab in front of Stamets? Like, when Stamets says, couldn't you go do that somewhere else? My thought was, why is this the room they chose to do this in in the first place? There's computers all over the place. But of course, it's actually so that we know that Stamets has witnessed this. And, and that does suggest, as you say, that he is really one of the few people who is aware that this is going on. So that was actually quite smart. Well, as we said, Spock and Stamets are basically just one-upping each other with good advice here. So now it's Spock's turn to give more good advice to, to Stamets. And he tells him here that he doesn't think that Dr. Colbert needs space because of how he feels about Stamets, but because of how he feels about himself after coming back from the underworld. And, you know, this is something that Stamets hadn't thought about before, or at least needed to hear a third party say to him that, that maybe it's not about Stamets, right? That it's about Colber. Hopefully this is going to land and we'll see this get into some good practice here uh, in, in an episode to come. All I heard in this entire scene was they might get back together. That's all I heard. That's what they said, right? That's what Spock said. Spock said they're going to get back together. <laughs> and Spock is giving him good advice about how to work that out, right? Which is like by by not smothering him, by not trying to sh- show Dr. Kolber that, that Stamets is great and that he shouldn't have weird feelings about Stamets, right? To realize that actually the thing to do is to be there for Kolber, even if being there means not being there. Oof, no one likes that one. Oh, I don't know anyone who is capable of, of doing that or doing that well. It's it's hard to do, but hopefully hearing Spock say that will will help him out. That's 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 the optimist in me speaking. Anyway, I, I don't know if I have an optimist in me. <laughs> <laughs> I might have enough optimism for for both of us, despite being a, a Cubs fan. Well, all right, let's let's get to the climax of this episode with the landing party. So. Arium, Burnham, and Nan beam over to the Section 31 headquarters, where the gravity and the environmental controls are off. There's frozen blood floating around. There are other signs of violence. It is a real terrifying haunted house. But the question is, who was fighting whom here? Like, what violence was going on here? This was not something that they were expecting. So there are a couple things I loved about this whole away team stuff that we're about to see. One is I would also play this video game. (laughs) This is a really cool video game that I would definitely play. It feels like they just beamed into a Resident Evil game and I was super into it. The other thing that I loved is, you know, I have a longstanding history on this show of of expressing my distaste for the violence uh, that was in season one of Discovery. I think I've really appreciated the effect of everything being frozen because it was eerie and creepy and ominous without being gratuitous. The fact that the blood was frozen and the bodies were frozen made it less gory in a way that let me get through the scene more comfortably or at least like in a less disgusted manner. And all of this was a really great homage to Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, where we also get the the gravity boots and blood floating and, and bodies floating as well. And also violence that doesn't make sense to us as we're watching it the first time. So I liked that aspect of this as well. And at this point, we encounter a floating corpse and it is the Telluride Admiral we've met before. And then Nan goes and gets the gravity back on and they realize that there are in fact several corpses around here, including Admiral Patar. And they've all been dead for at least two weeks. So now the question is, who were they just talking to if Admiral Patar is dead? I didn't put this together until the bodies fell from the ceiling uh, even when I saw the Tellerite, I I didn't I kind of wasn't paying attention to the context of it. It really all came together for me once later on the bridge. Saru explains it and makes it all come together for me. Um, so for, uh, the tension was there uh, and that mystery was there for a long time, which I enjoyed. 
Right. So back on Discovery, Saru has figured this all out. Control is capable of making sophisticated holograms, which is also how he faked the Spock murder video. And that what this means is that Control really has, as I suggested last episode, gone all HAL 9000 murder bot. But I still had questions at this point because I've not done a great job myself of keeping track of how much time is passing, though I would also say that the show doesn't really let us know how much time is passing. So I don't really know what episode was two weeks ago, but I'm assuming that we've never actually seen Admiral Patar, the real Admiral Patar, that when we have seen her before, she has always been a fake, always been controlled by the Section 31 computer. That's really a fun thought. I, I It hadn't crossed my mind, but it's a little bit fun to think that there was a hologram on the holophone. <laughs> right. <laughs> And there's more to the story than this. And until he figures out basically everything else that is going on as well, which is that Arium has cleared out all of her memories before beaming over with the landing party. And and this is totally out of character, right? She always brings some of her special memories with her. And what she's done with that extra memory space is download all the sphere data, which she is now bringing to control to upload directly because the Wi-Fi just wasn't good enough that she needs to plug in directly to the computer. And of course, this is the enemy from the future, right? So if control gets this data from the sphere, then it's going to be able to become fully self-aware and all powerful. And so they have to stop this from happening. Right. It's worth saying that the data from the sphere is not all the data the sphere collected that we've gotten mentioned in other episodes. It is specifically all the data from the sphere related to artificial intelligence. This seems to be an interesting time paradox, right, to use the language of Back to the Future, where at at some point, in some timeline, this has been successful. And so in the future, control or the, the, the squid bot forces are trying to make sure that that always happens because it's the Red Angel who is actually trying to prevent this thing from happening. And it does get prevented here in this episode. So I'm interested in, in what else it is that uh, is going to have to be done in order to prevent control from becoming completely the HAL 9000 that we know it is in 500 years. I haven't totally figured it out, right? Because there's one way of looking at it that by stopping Arium successfully, that could kind of undo the whole squid bot thing, right? Like this didn't happen, therefore they never developed. Alternatively, this didn't happen, therefore they didn't develop slightly better, (laughs) right? Because they had this information and and we don't get to know yet. And this is a mystery that remains for me is how did this action alter the timeline? And also, I haven't completely figured out how all of the other instances of the signals and the Red Angel completely tie in to this. So, you know, you haven't ruined everything, Glenn. That's what I'm saying. No, I have no idea really what's going on here, other than that all of this feels very reminiscent of the temporal Cold War of Star Trek Enterprise. So I won't be surprised if the Red Angel turns out to be Daniels or Scott Bakula or, I don't know, maybe it's Hoshi to Paul. Who knows who it could be at this point? But it does very much feel like this type of, uh, of future fight to control the timeline of the past to ensure that the right future happens. We've had this type of story in Star Trek before. I, I thought it was a story that most people didn't really like. So I'm interested to see that they're trying it again here. I think it's different. I I think it's substantially different. And I don't know if I can really back that up or if it's just a feeling. But this plot with the Sulaban and Enterprise just got so tiresome, I thought, personally. And having it be a computer gone out of control haywire, that's way more fun for me, I think, and way more dynamic. And it drags less. I think they have done a very good job this season of carrying the action and the tension and the excitement from episode to episode without dragging out the plot line. They might make this mistake and drag it out too far in coming episodes. We'll have to find out. But to me, it does feel very different. I don't feel that the time dynamics are too terribly complicated um, and tiresome in the way that they were on Enterprise. I will also say that it did come to my mind whether or not Burnham is the Red Angel. Is that something that you thought about this episode? I've wondered about this as well, that it's it's Burnham in the future, and it might be Burnham like 
two days in the future who is taken to the real future and given the suit or whatever. But yes, I have wondered if this also might not just be Burnham herself in there. And we didn't really talk about this in the Spock Stamets scene, but but Stamets is asking Spock as well to think about what it is that makes him unique, why the Red Angel would pick him out. And Spock doesn't have a real good answer. I mean, he says, well, I'm half human, half Vulcan. That's unusual. It's rare, but I'm not unique. There are others like me, so that can't be it. But he is Burnham's only brother, right? That's a thing that makes him unique, is his connection to Burnham. And Aram is about to say, the AI wanted me to kill you. That's their problem. They want to get rid of you. Why would they want to get rid of Burnham? So that she doesn't get this magic red angel suit and, you know enact a plot to stop them it also makes sense that that you know even if it's two days from now burnham she would want to go back in time and help spock save her life right because she's the only one that knows that she ran away and where she went yeah yes right i think we're, we're going to get the line here about project daedalus in just a minute and that might be a good place to to take that one step further but let's let's deal with the violence first before we get to these revelations so now that pike knows everything that's going on because tilly and saru have cracked it he tries to intervene but it is too late because arium is already in full squid mode and uh she gets real murdery over on the 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 prison colony and there's a big fight but ultimately, Burnham contains Arium so that she can't actually do any more violence. But Arium is still able to keep uploading this this data. And here, Tilly tries to save the day. She calls Arium and uh, invokes their friendship. And then she sends Arium some of her memories to remind Arium that she is a person. She is not a squid bot. And, and this works in the sense that it restores Arium's memories and restores her personhood. But she can't actually control her own motor functions. And so she is going to carry out Control's orders whether or not she wants to. And this is going to include destroying Discovery and killing all of her friends. And she would rather not do those things. And the only solution is for Burnham to blow her out the airlock. This was just so heartbreaking and hard to watch. Can you imagine, like, cognitively being able to know what's happening to you and that what your body is doing is trying to murder all your friends and literally destroy the world but you can't stop yourself like oh my god and also Sonequa Martin-Green's acting here just like with a look she can give 10 emotions it's impeccable and Burnham really does freak out here, right? She does not want to do this. She doesn't want to let Ariam die. She certainly doesn't want to be responsible for it. And so she tries to find another way to keep Ariam from uploading the the data here. And and maybe not the best ideas. She's just trying anything, like shooting the lock, like trying to break the the glass. She's really responding uh, hyper emotionally here. And this is the second time this episode, right, where we have seen these this highly logical kids of Sarek uh, lose their logic and just get super emotional because they care about people. Yeah, I like these versions of them. <laughs> I do too, but this scene is not is not going to end well. Arium begs Burnham to just kill her, and my my heart starts to break really at at this moment. And Burnham. Relance. And of course, everyone back on the ship is telling her as well that she has to do this. And and this is where just before she's going to get blown out of the airlock, Ariam tells Burnham that Control's obsessed with her and that Control regards her as the key. And this is where she says that Burnham has to go find Project Daedalus. And, you know, as we say all the time, these writers are huge classics nerds. This is another classics reference. Uh, Valerie, what can we glean from the use of Daedalus here? Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing that we learn is that when we say that the writers love classics, it's seeming more and more that they really love Ovid. (laughs) Yeah, which I don't complain about. Ovid is my favorite of the poets. As well. Totally, totally agree. But, you know, we've talked about the metamorphoses a lot on this podcast, particularly. And here it is again. But Daedalus is a mythical artist and and craftsman. And 
super good builder stuff, creative guy, I think is exactly how it's written in in Ovid. And um, most famously, he designed and constructed the labyrinth um, holds the Minotaur. This is probably a myth that is pretty familiar to most people. Right. This is the Minotaur on Crete, who is you know, the half person, half bull figure who needs to eat people on a regular basis. And so the the cities of Greece have to send young human sacrifices to wander around in this labyrinth that really is the prison for the Minotaur. Uh, and of course, the, the real story is about how Theseus uh, heroically solves the labyrinth by using thread to be able to find his way back out once he has defeated the Minotaur in combat. And the thing about this labyrinth, the reason that that so many people uh, did not make it back out of the labyrinth um, and that Theseus needed some extra help uh, and this special thread to get through it is that the labyrinth was so well designed um, that it had these kind of horrific long-term consequences. Daedalus himself had trouble solving it, right? So the kind of lasting cultural idea of this mythical figure is... A kind of to give us a didactic lesson to to be careful about what will really happen. What are the long-term consequences of the things we create and the things we invent, right? So thematically, I think what, what we're seeing here is, you know, be careful what you create. Be careful what you wish for. Maybe Section 31 should have been a little more thoughtful in creating this really intelligent AI that can then take everything over and, you know, murder people and have terrifying minds that cut ships in half, right? But the other thing that Daedalus is famous for inventing are these big, giant wax wings for him and his son. And I don't know, Glenn, is there a Red Angel connection there? Yes, absolutely there is. These are wings that Daedalus and his son Icarus are going to put on so that they can fly. Uh, somehow these work, they do actually just strap these on their back and they're able to fly around. And the real tragedy of this story is that Icarus, who's this young boy, uh, flies too high to the sun despite his dad cautioning him and the wax melts, which then destroys the wings and he plummets back to the surface of the earth and dies. And this is a real tragedy, but I think that this is the image that's being invoked here in naming this project Daedalus. It, it, this is all about things with wings, at least the way that I'm thinking about it. And so this is why I think it might really be the case that Burnham is actually in the Red Angel suit, that Project Daedalus is actually about making this angel suit, and that we're going to find her in it, possibly, in the next episode or next few episodes, though, really, it could be anything. I think it's wonderful that we both got such different kind of primary themes out of the Daedalus story, which which I think are both valid and both active. And it's probably worth saying that the labyrinth was so hard to get out of, right? He, he, was, he wasn't thinking about the long-term consequences of his invention so much that he needed these wings to fly out of it after being imprisoned in it himself. <laughs> Right. And both stories are about thinking through the consequences of your actions and, uh, and, and the loss that can come with tinkering too much, right? I mean, the, the real tragedy here for Daedalus is that he loses his son. His son dies because of uh, an invention that he made, because he was tinkering with things, trying to, uh, to go further than he should be allowed to go, right? And this is, this is really, in some ways, the, the er story of every mad scientist story that there is, right? It also makes me wonder if we're going to get an Icarus, right? Like, if there's going to be a second person uh, involved in this whole suit business when we go to find Project Daedalus, who doesn't make it out, who flies too close to the sun um, and doesn't survive. And God, Discovery, just stop killing people I like, yeah. please. Yeah, gosh, I don't even know if I could deal with thinking about that right now because of what we have still to talk about here, which is that with this command to go find Project Daedalus, Arium goes out the airlock and we get a, a long series of reaction shots here to Arium's death. And, and I thought that these were all really well done. We see people expressing shock and, and disbelief, right? All of this happened so quickly that they didn't even really have time to process the fact that something was wrong with Arium before she's just gone. She's just 
dead. This is this happens for them in really a matter of of minutes, under five minutes. This happens for them, and I found all of these reaction shots to be really moving. I did as well, and perhaps though the most moving part of the scene for me was the shots that we have of Non out of breath. Uh, that allow us to learn that Nan was the one that kind of opened the airlock, that hit the eject button, so to speak, right? Which is such uh, an emotional sacrifice. Like she has really saved Burnham from something, you know, from from not having to kill her friend. Uh, Nan did it instead, and and I think there's a little bit of a a redemption plot there for Nan, right? That she can do something good in this situation uh, that that she maybe could have helped prevent right um so there's a little bit of closure there but but seeing non hit the button or seeing her lying there after having hit it and then getting the reaction shot from burnham was probably the most powerful part of the scene for me and the episode is not done being powerful it is not done crushing our hearts into little pieces yet because uh, the episode ends from ariam's perspective she's got just a few seconds in space before the vacuum kills her and Tilly has sent her the memory of her wedding day and she watches this as she dies. It's, it's the last thing that she sees and this really wrecks me. Uh, and I am not crying yet, but I, it is a struggle right now to say this without crying. Oh man, you almost got me. I have tears <laughs> building in my eyes, Glenn. I was, that was, there was something about you narrating it that was even more emotional for me than watching it. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. Beautifully done episode. Way to go, Jonathan Frakes. Yeah, the directing was was top notch, especially here at the end, where this could have all been handled in a way that was maybe trite and and maybe hokey, but it, it was not. I think it got every emotional beat just right and made me empathize with every character in in the scene and to really rue that this has happened, to actually feel like the Section 31 computer has taken something from me as well and make me feel like it is a genuine bad guy. It's a genuine villain who must be stopped so that something like this doesn't happen again. It definitely has the effect of uniting the crew and the audience against a common enemy. And often in stories like this, our enemies, our our villains can seem kind of cartoonish. And I I think even up to this point, I hadn't maybe been taking it very seriously or been feeling in an emotional way, the villainy here of the Section 31 computer, because we've seen it blow up these planets in the future. And even seeing the corpses of the Section 31 admirals didn't seem personal to me. But now this really does. So I think this is this was an extraordinarily emotional episode. Every every scene was just packed with emotion. And I've left this episode with renewed interest in the story and, and the characters, for sure. I would agree with that. And I and I know I said this at the top of the episode, and it might sound contrary, but I think it's a testament to to the writers um, and the, the producers and directors of this episode in particular that there were also moments of joy and laughter in this incredibly heavy episode. And moments that are going to lead to healing at some point. I think that's, that's very clear. So that even while we are getting all of these tragedies, and especially this one here at the end, there is groundwork being laid for good things to to come uh, out, out of Ariam's sacrifice. Although I have actually staved off tears, uh, that's, that's, only, that's not going to last for much longer. So Valerie, maybe you can uh, fix me up with a drink before we get out of this episode. Yeah, you know, it was hard to pull inspiration from this episode because nobody directly pours a drink, right? <laughs> this horn names a drink, um, as opposed to some of the other episodes. And this was very, very emotional. So I decided to lean into my classical roots and, and design a cocktail inspired actually by the daiquiri. Oh, I love a daiquiri. Daiquiri, a classic daiquiri is really one of my favorite drinks. It's it's simple, sweet, also tart. Yeah, absolutely delicious, especially as it is turning to spring here on the uh, East Coast. Right. I needed something bright and fresh, but that also packed a punch. So a classic daiquiri is lighter white rum, uh, lime juice, and um, a kind of brown sugar or raw sugar syrup. Um, and balancing that rum, that acidity and the sugar is um, kind of the miracle of, of that drink. But I wanted to play with those elements a little bit to get a nice golden drink to fit the name of the golden thread 
to stay on that line of our Daedalus myth. Oh, that's wonderful. Right. The golden thread is what the princess Ariadne gives to Theseus to to use to make his way back out of the labyrinth once he is done fighting the Minotaur. So yeah, that's wonderful. This is going to be great. Right. And I thought it lets us look ahead, right? The golden thread, it's our way out, right? This is us looking forward to the rest of the season and and feeling like we might uh, walk free out of the labyrinth on the other side. (laughs) Maybe not as in pain as we feel right now, but it also made me think about the way that this season is really threading the plot through each episode and tying everything together, right? We use this metaphor of tying or weaving or knots a lot um, for season two here of Discovery. So the golden thread is is two ounces of light or white rum, classic um, to an original daiquiri. But instead of just lime and sugar syrup, I've put in, in addition to those two ounces of rum, an ounce of strega, which is a quite bright yellow Italian liqueur that's herbal and bitter and sweet all at the same time. Um, So it's two ounces of the rum, one ounce of the strega, and then an ounce of lemon juice. And it is, to me, the perfect balance of tart and bitter. And I got to tell you, it hides the rum. Not a big rum fan, but I love this drink. If you like, you can garnish it with some handcrafted miniature wax wings. But I just ran out of time today. Just don't put them too close to the, the candle that is on your uh, your bar table or it will all end in disaster. Well, this sounds like an absolutely delicious drink. And uh, I, I really could use a drink after after the, the heartbreak of this episode. So uh, I think I'm going to go make one since I have all these components here in the Clay Temple Studios. And on that note, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Right. You can come to the forum for the full recipe. Um, but Glenn, I, I really want to know if you like it because... Um, this is one of my favorite drinks that I think I've made um, recently for the podcast. So I was pretty excited about it and has a beautiful golden color. But with Drink in Hand, you can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. And if you are interested in learning more about Federation penal colonies, um, come on over to our Patreon, support us if you are able, and you'll get access to our most recent release, Glenn and I's coverage of the TOS episode, Dagger of the Mind. And make sure you check out our appearance on the Feast podcast. As we said, we had an absolute blast doing that. We know you're going to love listening to it. And you can come over to the forum and talk to us about food and booze and Star Trek as well. And while you're there, let us know if you think we're on the right track with who the Red Angel is going to be and its relation with the ominously named Project Daedalus. We'd be really excited to talk about those things with you. But until then, stay spacey.